spend a little time here <coughs> tap dancing till the mothers get back so we don't lose anybody. Hey, let me just say to you, while we're waiting for the ladies to come back here, uh, really pray about and work on uh, uh, our uh, Halloween deal. Everybody's got friends, and, you know, one of our greatest outreaches is, is talking to people about what we have to offer. And, uh, boy, there is a time, day and age where parents need to be on top of things with their kids and learn the process of teaching them the Bible. It's today. And uh, there's so little that's done, and there's so much to be done. So uh, you do your part and be praying about and be thinking about, you know, who in your life that God would have you uh, bring, that invite to come, and we'll have a great time that day. And we'll try to reach some couples, try to show them what our church is all about, that, that we have a great time, a fun time, and yet it's all centered around the Word of God and all that God has for us. So uh, that's a something. We're going to do those things from time to time. We're going to pick a little events that we're just going to really focus on reaching out to people. And I need everybody to get involved in some, some way, some shape, some form. And, uh, you know, it's a total church thing. So please be praying about it, be thinking about it, and uh, work with Kelly on it. And we'll have a great time as we, uh, as we get into those events and try to reach some folks. Well, the book of Job. As you know, we have been coming through the Bible we have been trying to lay out for you, book by book, the whole Bible. Many of you are in the process of, maybe for the first time in your life, really seriously studying the Bible. And uh, we're going through and trying to give you a, uh, a layout of the Bible that will work for you. Something that, you know, in years to come, you know, you can, you can take and study. And, or somebody else, as they come into the church later on, it wants to do it. Uh, it'll be an invaluable tool to really learn the Bible and help put the Bible together. And as you know so far, we've come through the book of Ezra uh, in our five books here that really lay out the premillennial return of the Lord. We've shown you how it's all, how it worked, the premillennial view. We looked at the book of Ezra where they go back, the book of Nehemiah where they rebuild, and then the book of Esther. We talked last week about the book of Esther, probably the most unique book in the Bible, as we said, the only book in the Bible where... Uh, uh, God is not mentioned or any reference at all to the Lord. And uh, so we have been uh, having a good time with that. And today we enter into the book of Job. And I want to read as a text this morning the first 12 verses or so here of Job. So if you'll turn to Job chapter 1 and follow with me, uh, we'll uh, get a context for what we're going to talk about. Now it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Eschewed is an old English word that means it hated evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God, and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou made a, a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon him uh, himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask you today, Father, to open up our hearts. Help us to see this incredible book. Lord, help me to be able to lay it out in the way that it needs to be laid out. There's so much here, Lord, and I truly, in a, in a way, Lord, don't know how to put it all in fashion, Father, that it'll, it'll come out on the other end making sense. But, Lord, that's your job. My job is to make sure that my heart is where it needs to be today, that my life is clean and pure in your sight, as these po people, Father, need to have their lives and clean, that I may be able to give them doctrine from you, but they may be able to receive it from you. Now, Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the book of Job has, has so much in it. It's hard to grasp it all. But if I'm speaking to someone down the line, you know, that's listening to this tape, or you're here this morning and you're going weekly or biweekly or some of you monthly, however it takes a while to get through the tapes uh, in your Bible, you know, I'm going to try to give you the meat of the book of Job this morning. Last week we talked about Esther. We saw how that Esther was a picture of the end of the times of the Gentiles. We looked at a great prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 that talked about the budding of the fig tree, the nation of Israel, how it fits in. We saw in the book of Esther where there's a rapture, a wedding, or a feast, a judgment seat of Christ. We saw in chapter 3 the rise of the Antichrist, and we come to the conclusion that the book of Esther, in our premillennial study of these books, brings us and introduces us to the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And now we've come to the book of Job. And the first thing I want to do is I want to give you a breakdown of Job. The breakdown of Job, again, is very easy. And it's something that uh, you need to put at the front of your Bible, like all the other books that I've given you, so that when you begin to read it, begin to look at it, that you begin to see it uh, in its simplicity as trying to study it uh, in its complexity. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are simply Job being tested. Then you go from chapter 3 to chapter 37, and we deal with Job being counseled. Then we come to chapter 38 through chapter 42, and we find Job being restored. And it's around these three breakdowns in your Bible that we're going to see the book of Job, first of all, from a doctrinal standpoint. Now, where the book of Esther, and I explained to you last week, where the book of Esther <coughs> begins to be the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the book of Job is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Remember now, the tribulation period, that time when the Bible prophesies about the rise of the Antichrist, a time when the devil takes over the world, a time that in the order of the events in the Bible, <coughs> the rapture takes place, and then the man of sin is revealed for seven years. He's on this earth, he runs this earth, and he tries to establish his own kingdom ahead of God's kingdom. Then we know that the next major event would be the second coming of Christ, 
The next major event would be the millennium, and that would be the next major event then would be <coughs> taking us into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And your order your Bible would be found, in, uh, and that order would be found throughout the book of Revelation, which we've taught you uh, a few times as we've come through and talked about other things. Now, the book of Job fits right into our study line because the book of Job <coughs> figures into the last three and a half years. The tribulation period is seven years, but it's divided into two periods. The first period runs three and a half years. This is the time period covered in the book of Esther. During this time, the Antichrist makes an alliance with the nation of Israel. <clears throat> During this time, the Antichrist rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and he comes to the point near the middle of the tribulation period where the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he actually sits in the temple of God in Jerusalem claiming to be God, demanding the whole world to worship him. And at that point... He goes after the Jew. He breaks the covenant, the bond, the peace that he's made with Israel. And now he goes after the Jew in a fashion of only uh, of, of pure terror. And this is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, which coming through your Bible, you will find called the Great Tribulation. When you find the term the Great Tribulation, it will always be a reference to the last three and a half years. First three and a half years is called the Tribulation. The last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. You'll find the Tribulation is called Jacob's Trouble or a time of trouble. You'll find it's called Daniel's 70th week. You'll all find it referenced throughout your Bible in a little phrase, those days. And uh, you'll find all those terms in the back of your little bookmark there that I gave you this morning because on the back side of that is all of the things that you need to know about, uh, uh, you know, about uh, the, the key words in the Bible that will help you get going. And by the way, let me just say, and I say this before, if you want a couple of more of those, if you want to give them out to your friends and, you know, talk about our ministry, see my wife, make sure that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you can get some because they're a key deal in showing people, you know, about the Bible. They're a great conversation piece, and uh, it's, a, it's a thing that uh, you can use. So, you know, just let us know, and we'll take care of you. But the book of Job lays out for us the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. The name Job itself means one persecuted. Job is in a land of us in chapter 1. The land of us is exactly where the Jew is going to be in the tribulation period. It's south of Jerusalem, down by the Dead Sea area, exactly where the Jew is going to run in the tribulation period. Job is on the ground seven days and seven nights when he goes through his persecution. Job typifies for us the nation of Israel. His life and what he goes through is a picture of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. If you come through there in chapter 3, and I gave you the outline, it talked about Job counseled from Job chapter 3 to Job chapter 37. On those chapters, you'll find three friends show up to Job, and they falsely accuse him. They falsely accuse him, and they add to his burden, they add to his suffering, because they falsely try to accuse him. And when you go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, you'll find that during the great tribulation period, when Israel is being run into the wilderness, that the Bible says there's three, I said three, unclean spirits like frogs that persecute the nation of Israel. That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So, so far, so far, <clears throat> the next thing I want to see is this. You ever get one of them words when you can't get out of it, you're trapped into it? 
The book of Job has 42 chapters in it. The book of the Great Tribulation has 42 months. In Job chapter 42, verse 10, you'll find that the Bible says, The Lord turns the captivity of Job. And the Lord ceases the devil from hurting him in Job chapter 42 and turns his captivity exactly like the Lord turns the captivity of the nation of Israel at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Job chapter 42, verse 11, you'll find that there's a resurrection. Job gets his kids back at the end. You'll find at the end of the great tribulation period, there's a resurrection. Uh, Israel uh, comes back. The people get, get killed, come back. You'll find in chapter 42, verse 10, that Job gets a double portion of everything he had. The Bible says at the end of his life, God gives him back double. And if you'd go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, you'd find at the end of the great tribulation period, Israel gets back double everything that uh, they lose. And uh, at the same time, you'll find a man in there called Elihu. Elihu is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. He's the writer of the book. And what Elihu does is give us a running commentary behind the scenes showing us the insight of what's going on in this time in Job's life, which is a picture for you and for me doctrinally, doctrinally how it applies to the second coming of Christ, the great tribulation period. So we see the first thing you want to remember about Job as you're laying Job out, get that information down you're going to find so many references to the tribulation period in the book of Job, it'll take you the rest of your life to catalog them all. Because Job, in a doctrinal sense, is a book that lays out the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, the last 42 months, when the devil persecutes the nation of Israel. And that material is covered throughout the book of Revelation, uh, with particularly Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. Now, the next thing the book of Job does, which... Uh, I think it does probably better than any other book in the Bible. It shows you how the devil works. Because certainly during the tribulation period, the devil is at work. And any time you find where you're going to find a book that is dedicated uh, to what the devil is doing behind the scenes, you're going to find a lot of material that shows you how he operates. Because you and I need not to be ignorant of his devices. We need to understand how he's going to attack. Because he attacks Israel just like he's going to attack us. Because in Job chapter, in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, we find the devil defined as he is defined in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. Because in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, the Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. And you're going to find that when you want to study the devil in the Bible, the easiest way to study the devil, and for me, I always take the hardest things and break them down where the easiest to remember. If you want to study the devil in the Bible, throughout the Bible, you can study him real easily. There's two times the devil is kicked out of heaven. And if you build everything else in your Bible around those two times, you're going to have an easy time to understand it. We know that before uh, the fall uh, of Satan, he's back there and... Uh, when he's back there in the distant past someplace, we know that he's not the devil. He's Lucifer. He's bright shining. He's sun of the morning. We know that he had a position with God and he worked with God, but the Bible says that he wasn't satisfied with that and pride rose up in his heart and he wanted to be like the Most High God. So we find that the first time the devil is kicked out of heaven, he is kicked out of heaven positionally. He loses that crown. He loses the concept of Lucifer, and now he becomes the devil. 
Now he becomes Satan. And when he's kicked out of heaven the first time, in Ezekiel chapter, it will be Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, when he's kicked out the first time, he's kicked out positionally. He loses his position. At that point, the Bible says, that would be Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right up to Revelation chapter 13. Right up through the Old Testament, right up through Adam and Eve, right up through Abraham, right up through the kings of Israel, right up into the church age, right up into your life, right up in my life, right up into the middle of the tribulation period, the Bible says his job now is the accuser of the brethren. What he does now is he stands before the throne of God and he accuses God's people, he accuses the nation of God, Israel, he accuses all of the things and all of the people that stand for God. He accuses them, as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, day and night. And right now, and from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when he was kicked out positionally, that is his job. He travels from earth to heaven, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. He goes into the throne room before God, and then he accuses the brethren before Almighty God, the Bible says, day and night. Second time he's kicked out of heaven, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And that's when the Bible says that he's kicked out as the accuser of the brethren, and now he's kicked out bodily. The first time he's kicked out positionally. He still has access back and forth to heaven and earth where he accuses the brethren before God. But in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, right smack dab in the middle of Daniel, the 70th week, the Bible says now he is kicked out bodily, and then the Bible gives a warning. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the devil is come down to you. And at that point, he comes down out of heaven. He's kicked out. He never goes back to heaven again. He's now kicked out bodily. He enters into the person called the Antichrist and does what he does in the great tribulation period. And the book of Job lays that out so incredibly well. There's a great chapter in Job. In fact, the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil are Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. The two greatest chapters in the New Testament are Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. When you come through Job chapter 41 in verse 12, you find this verse. God says, I will not conceal, talking about the devil, I will not conceal his parts, his power, or his comely proportion. You'll find three places in the Bible that lay out his parts, his power, and his comely proportion. When you come to Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, you'll find laid out his power. When you come to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 with Job, you'll find defined his parts. And when you come to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, you'll find defined for you his comely proportion. The Bible is the greatest book in the world that lays out the devil. That's why the devil hates the Bible. That's why the devil, down through history, has worked over time to change that Bible because if you destroy the words in the Bible by changing the words, you destroy the cross-references in the Bible that show you who the devil is. So from a doctrinal standpoint, wow, the book of Job is an incredible book. It shows you the great tribulation period. It gives you insight in how the devil operates. And then the, the, second, the third thing that the book of Job does is the book of Job, without a doubt, probably without a doubt, is one of the most practical books in all of the Bible. If there's any book in the Bible that has taught me more about people, if there's any book in the Bible that has taught me about how to deal with people, 
If there's any book in the Bible that has showed me the, the, the issues of life, uh, when, now, and when we get into the Job, we're getting into the first of the five wisdom books, and we're going to be going into Psalms, and we're going to be working right on down the line, and boy, I'm telling you, you take these five books together, as you'll see in weeks to come, and man, you've got everything you ever wanted to know. But you know what? The book of Job, from a practical sense, answers one of the great age-old questions. And I'm asked this all the time. I, I bet you if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me this question in the last 35 years of my life, I, I wouldn't even have to, I, I would be so rich I wouldn't know what to do with all the money. And the answer is this. And Job answers this book. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And why do bad things happen to good people? Now that's the question today. If I've been asked one time, I've been asked a thousand times, why little babies die? If I've been asked once, I've been asked 10,000 times, why do some of God's people who, ha who live and love God and want to do what's right, why do they have to go through some of the things that they go through? And when you see men out there that hate God, that are atheists, who claim to have nothing to do with God in their lives, they seemingly live good, healthy lives all of their lives, and uh, sometimes it can get confusing. Well, I need to preach the rest of this message now that I've got the doctrine out of the way. I want to preach it to you from a personal side. Because if you're ever going to get into the ministry, if you're ever going to work with people, and I say get into the ministry, I'm not talking about pastoring a church, I'm talking about getting to the point where I can have you deal with people in their problems. There's many things you're going to have to learn. But I want to talk to you today about a few things that God showed me out of the book of Job. Because I had to go through a learning process. I didn't wake up one day, you know, 30 years ago and know everything I know about the Bible. There was a process of time. And as I said, the book of Job, to me anyhow, is probably one of the greatest practical books in all of the Bible. I know it's the greatest book that answers that question, why do the righteous suffer and why do bad things happen to God's people? But there's four or five things that God showed me over the years that the book of Job does for me. Now, maybe it won't do it for you. I don't know. I'm only preaching to you what God has shown me. But I know this. God has shown me some things about this book that have helped me understand why things are the way they are. Because if you're ever going to do anything for God, the first thing you're going to have to do is understand people. And the key to understanding people is understanding yourself. If you try to figure out everybody else without figuring out yourself, if you try to delve into everybody else's problem without solving your own, you're on thin ice and you're in a bad situation. And I'll tell you what, I've learned how to deal with people, but I learned how to deal with people based on looking at myself and dealing with me because I'm a people person. A people. I'm a, I'm a people. I hope I'm a people person, but I'm a people person. I'm a person who's a people. You know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. I hope you got it figured out. Now, the first thing this book does for me, it puts suffering into perspective for me. I think one of the things that, and I, and I need to say this today, I, 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 I dare not go any farther without saying what i got to say. There's a lot more people in life who have suffered more than I have ever suffered. 
There's people in this building this morning who suffer all the time. And you don't know how inadequate I feel preaching this message. That I'm going to tell you about something about suffering. If there's any time in my life when I feel like I don't have the stuff to say, what do you do? I watch some of you walk around here and you can't even sit down because you're hurt so bad. I know some of you have been through that, 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 that I don't know how, how you got through it. And I, I just got to tell you this. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, whatever I'm going to, most of what I'm going to say, it isn't to you. You've taught me more from what you've went through than I have ever could teach you by what I'm going to say. But maybe what I can say will help. The last thing I want, because I'm going to get wound up here in just a minute. If you can't tell, my spring's getting tight. And the last thing I want to do is to think that I'm preaching to you folks. I get so sick of myself. I get so sick of the way I am. And I'll tell you what, the book of Job puts suffering into perspective for me. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. But when you come through chapter 1 and chapter 2, you will find out that Job loses in seven days what you and I will never lose in our lifetime. I mean, it, says, it starts out in chapter 1, verse 13, and it simply says this, there was a day. And I want to tell you something. There may come a day in your life where you're faced with real suffering. Not the self-inflicted kind that we all give ourselves and walk around wanting to pretend we're suffering. I'm talking about real suffering. I'm talking about things that, that go way beyond my own little petty things that I have to try to deal with. I'm telling you, Job loses in seven days what you and I will never lose in a lifetime. And it's in this concept where you begin to understand and you begin to, begin to see the perspective of suffering in the right perspective. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it starts out like this. And don't even look at your Bible. Just listen to me. I don't want you to lose it by concentrating. You can go back and you know what it says. We've all read it a thousand times. Look at it on your own. But listen to it. He comes down through there, and the Bible says that he's got everything he could want. He's as happy as could be. He's Big Ben Cartwright on the Ponderosa. I mean, little Joe and Hoss and Adam are out there running all over the place. He's got horses. He's got camels. He's got servants. He's the richest man in all the East, the Bible says. And in one day, there was a day, the Bible says. When his servants ran in and said, oh, Job, you ain't going to believe this, but your oxen are gone, your asses are gone, and your servants have been killed. And before that guy even walked out of the room, another guy ran in and he says in verse 16, the fire of God has fallen, and all your sheep and all the servants are killed. Before that guy ever got the, out of the room, another guy ran in in verse 17 and says, your camels and your servants are dead. They're gone. And in one breath, in one stroke... Everything that Job worked for, everything that Job had, everything that Job labored for, everything that Job built, everything that he was entitled to was taken away. Rich as the rags. His stock market collapsed. 
He lost his job. He's in financial ruin. And his 401k just went out the window. I know what I'm telling you. It's tough when you lose the monetary things, the physical things, the things that sustain you. It's tough. But oh, we're not done yet. That represents his financial fabric. But then, somebody runs in in verse 18 and says, Job, I got some terrible news. Your sons and your daughters have been killed in a tragic accident. Now on top of the financial loss, he has a physical loss. And oh, what a terrible thing that is. I don't care if you're saved or not. I'm not saying that we don't have the right perspective of death and somebody's going to heaven. But the bottom line in there is a connection. There is emotions. There is feelings. There is grief. And he didn't just lose his wife. He didn't just lose one of his kids. He lost every member of his family. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, 8, and 9, when he's sitting there weeping, the doctor calls him on the phone and says, Hey, you know what, Job? On top of everything else, you've got a terminal disease that is going to be so painful and so rocking that you're going to sit on an ash heap with a piece of broken pottery scraping the pus off your boils. How's that for perspective? In seven days' time, he loses what you and I will never lose in a lifetime. He loses his monetary value. He loses his personal loss with his family. And he loses his physical loss of his own health. Oh, I'll tell you. It takes so little to derail us today in the world that we live in. And I'll tell you why. We, the more you have, the less it takes to ruin your day. That's why people who don't have anything are usually the happiest. And I am telling you, I'm no authority on suffering. I can't even begin to understand where you folks have been. And I look around this world and I know God's people will suffer. And sometimes I, I just, I, I'm telling you, and, and I'm, not, I'm not preaching this to you, I'm preaching it to me. I'm not preaching to even anybody else. I'm just saying, this is what this book taught me. It taught me to put, pers- my, it taught me to put suffering in perspective. I knew a man one time. His name was Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley was a, one of the most unique individuals I ever found in my life, ever met in my life. He's dead now. But he traveled around the country preaching. And while he was traveling, he had five different forms of cancer. He looked like death. He looked like he'd been dead for two years. He, he was gray. He was emaciated. His eyes were sunken back in his head. But you know what? In all that he must have suffered, in all that he went through, and I watched him after he preached how exhausted he was, how he, had to, he couldn't even stand through the invitation. He, had just, he wore himself out, and he did that year after year after year after year. And yet I want to tell you something. If you ever talked to him, there was never a time in his life that you didn't walk away from him and you didn't wish you were him. He never walked around carrying his sorrow. And I'll tell you something else. That's something else I respect about you for. Boy, most people that really suffer and, and have been through suffering, you can't even tell their suffering. You could have never told that Manly Beasley had five different kinds of cancer. 
Oh, I'm telling you. You know what the difference is? The difference is in the world we can all identify is like John Kerry and John McCain. John Kerry spent 120 days in Vietnam and he goes around telling everybody in the world he's a hero. Let me tell you something. John McCain spent three years in the Hanoi Hilton as a POW being tortured, being laughed at, being mocked. Well, guys like Kerry, uh, in the Hanoi Hilton today, in the museum, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a picture of Jane Fonda and John Kerry, your next president, and the communists of, of South Vietnam say what great service they did to us defeating the United States. Is that the guy you want for president? Go ahead, friend. I don't care. But he ain't no hero. Let me tell you something. If you're a hero, you don't have to go around telling the world you're a hero. Old John McCain, he was senior commander in that POW camp, and they wanted to make a trade. And they said, you know what? I mean, you can't understand how it was in those POW camps. I mean, they tortured them. They put electrical wires on them. They tried to get them to do everything in the world to deny America. They tried to get them to do what John Kerry did, and they wouldn't do it. And they came up, and they said to John McCain, we'll trade you out and let you go home because we got a deal going politically and we're going to send you and release you. And he said, I'm senior commander here. I am not leaving till my men leave. And you have to find that piece of information in a book someplace hidden that nobody ever reads anymore. You know why? Because when you're a real hero, you don't have to tell anybody. You just do it. Because that's the character you are. And I'm telling you, I appreciate the character of men and women who suffer, who you never know they suffer, who they always have a smile on their face. You have to read between the lines to see the pain. They don't go around telling it about what they've been through and all this, looking for sympathy. They bear it. I don't know how they bear it, but they bear it. I'm not preaching this message. I'm preaching this message to us, every one of us who mope around in life wanting the world to feel sorry for us. <laughs> I, we used to have, a, <laughs> we used to have a, a girl in our ministry a number of years ago. I read one where, where an eagle or a red-tailed hawk can see a mouse move in a field at 500 feet. This woman had him beat. She could spot, she could spot somebody wearing the face of feel sorry for me at a thousand yards. They'd be walking through the parking lot and she'd swoop like a big eagle, come down and she'd say, oh, you're having problems today, aren't you? Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. Oh, oh, oh. I'll tell you, I had a talk with my dogs last week. I was watching the news at 6 o'clock about bomb-sniffing dogs. They make $175 an hour. They hire them out at KCI. I'm sitting there, I'm looking over at Buddy, he's looking at me. Daisy, she's on her back on her floor and asleep with her head out like that. Tinker was on the other side. I'm saying, hey, hey, look at that. <laughs> you lose a tennis ball in high weeds, I don't care where it's at. Daisy will find it. 
I can't tell you what Buddy's good at finding, but you don't want to know. But I'm telling you, I said, guys, look, if you could train your sniffer to smell out bombs, look how much money you could make for daddy. <laughs> then I thought of this lady. I wanted to call her on the phone. I felt like saying, if you can sniff out bombs like you sniff out dirt in people's lives, why her nose would make the vacuum clean. She could, her nose could suck a golf ball through a garden hose, man. I ain't kidding you. She, she, she's got some. She could, she, could, she could just, she had every piece of dirt in the whole wide world. Her title was Minister of Information. If there was anything wrong with anybody, she knew it. And she always found a willing supply of people who were willing to tell her their troubles, their sufferings. And she would run the suffering flag up the suffering flagpole. She would get the suffering trumpet and blow the suffering charge. Real heroes, you don't know who they are because they never brag about themselves. Real sufferers, you got to pry. you got to ask. They don't wear it on their face like they do their, on, their, on their face that everybody can read it. Old Manly Beasley, an incredible individual. Incredible. I'll tell you what, I, I didn't know him for long, but I learned so much from him. You say about suffering? No, no, no. About putting suffering into perspective. Because I'm just like most of you. I like to feel sorry for myself. I have my corner in my house where I suck my thumb. I like to wham, wham all about things that I don't like. And when I get some little ache or pain, oh, I'm suffering. Let me tell you something, my friend. Real heroes don't have to spout out that they're a hero. Everybody knows you're a hero by the way you walk and the way you carry yourself. I don't think I've ever heard John McCain any time in all the heroes I've ever bring up his war unless somebody asks him. And you know what? He's a hero. John Kerry's a phony. He's a wannabe like most of us. First thing it did, it gave me a perspective for suffering because I need one. I get so sick of myself. I get so sick of the way I am. Then the second thing it taught me. God gave me a yardstick, a spiritual yardstick to measure my spiritual maturity. You know, in dealing with people or in situations with life, you have two aspects. You have respond and you have react. And I know this is nothing new. You folks that have been around for a while have heard this over and over again. But we're in the book Job. I don't know what else to say. You're not responsible for the bad things in life that happen to you. I, you can't. I can't. Nobody can hold you accountable because something goes bad in your life. I mean, you look within yourself and make sure it's not chastisement of God and all the nine yards, but the bottom line is, nobody, I can't hold, I can't blame anybody because, but what you can blame is how you, how you, how do you respond, do you respond to it or do you react to it? All my young Christian life, I scratched my head. That is why I have a bald spot right here. No. 
You think I've lost my hair because I'm getting older. No, I've scratched my head for 25 years looking at things that I didn't understand until God taught me four or five things out of the book of Job. I ain't kidding you. All my life I saw men and women that were held up as leaders. I saw them in churches. They, were, they, they had great Sunday school classes. I, I saw them, they, they were deacons. I, I saw them, they worked in every ministry. They, they helped people how, and all kinds. I mean, they were, they, they, I mean I, all my life. And, I've, and I would watch them at a time in their life when they would just fold up. And I'm not talking about just stupid stuff that we all do. I'm talking about major meltdown breakdowns. I mean, I, mean, I, I just could never figure it out. Well, we all do dumb things. I'm not, I'm not even... I'm talking about... I watch people who, when something happened in their life, they just folded up like a broken cardboard box. Then out of the book of Job one day, I learned a great truth. I learned it's not how well you know the Bible, or you need to know the Bible. I know it's not how great you preach. I know it's not how many you run in your church, how big a church you have, or how big your Sunday school class is, or whatever. I know it's not how many people you can work with. See, we look at all those things and we see those in ourselves and we think, and people think, because, and then we get disillusioned. But you got to get it. And I had to get this. I had to realize that it's responding versus reaction. None of those things really show your maturity, none of those things really make you as a Christian. What really makes you and I as a Christian is how do you respond to adversity? When your world falls apart around your neck, how do you deal with it? In other words, when you really get squeezed, that's another thing, and you've heard this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I, love, I must have told this story a million times. Manly Beasley told it so many times. He, he was preaching, and he was up there, and he, he asked the abstract question. He says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? The lady down in front raised her hand, you know. In fact, it was the same lady that had the vacuum cleaner for her nose, if I remember right. And she's still around, by the way. And I don't take that. I love her. I do. I'm just telling you the way she is. But I love her. She still calls our house every once in a while, see how we're doing. Every time my wife's talking to her, I just go like this till I find out that she said she's not coming to our church. <laughs> then I relax a little bit. <laughs> Old Manly Beasley, he get up there and he says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? lady down front, she says, Mr. Beasley, you get lemon juice. And he says, you know, he says, that's what you'd think, wouldn't you? He says, you know, back where I came from a couple of years ago, he said there was a guy that was going into grocery stores, and he had some kind of arsenic poisoning in hypodermic needles. And he was going into the grocery store, and without anybody seeing him, he was ejecting poison into lemons. People were buying the lemons, taking them home, and making lemon juice, and dying. And they couldn't find out, figure out why this poison was in their system. Then they tracked the whole thing back and, you know, uh, it was a trail of the lemons or whatever, you know, and they got back there. And he said, you know what? He says, when you squeeze a lemon, he says, you would think you get lemon juice. But the truth of the matter is, he says, when you squeeze a lemon, what is really on the inside comes out. You see, when you squeeze Christians, you think you ought to get Christian juice. Stuff that makes you make it. But the truth of the matter is, when you get squeezed, when adversity comes, what you get is really on the inside. Really on the inside. And I'm telling you. You know, I, 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 
I watch people. I deal with people. And you know, you can buy all the books in the world, you know, to talk about the spiritual gifts of people and all the attitudes of people and how this and all that. And you know what? You know, great principles of leadership, but da 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 Get my book. It's got 28 principles of leadership, you know. You know, and get my book. It's only got nine. You can get there quicker, you know. And get my book, you know. It's got 106, you know. You'll be really wise when you get my book and all these things, you know. Go to my seminar. Go to this. Well, I got a thing the other day where where it talked about a big old color flyer about that big with everybody in the world on it, talking about how to send your Christian leadership here, you know, and we'll, 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 die, we'll figure out whose spiritual leaders is what, and whose spiritual gifts is what, and we'll bring them back. You send them to us at $500 a piece, we'll send you back the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. And that's all too complicated for me when you know the Bible. Because the bottom line is, you want to find out what anybody is, where anybody's at, you want to find out what true spirituality is, just look for two things. First thing I look at is their family. Because your family, father, is the mirrored image of your walk with God. I don't care. You can make every excuse in the world. The bottom line is your family is what your, your walk is what your family is. And as heroes are in the hands of mighty men, so are children of the youth. Sorry. That's just the way that it is. Second thing I look at, what you get upset about. How you handle adversity. You see, the first one, your family will define your walk. The second one, how you deal with adversity, will define your maturity. I don't need to know anything else about you. Because everything else that's in the Bible is found in those two. Those two. Those two. And I'm telling you, the real question in your life and my life, and that's why it gave me a yardstick for my own spiritual maturity. Because it showed me how immature I was how that I would react versus responding, how that when adversity came, here I am up here preaching all of the great things about the Bible, and yet when a little adversity comes, nothing compared to what some of you folks have been through. When my little adversity comes, oh, go look out. Third thing it taught me. Third thing it taught me, it showed me that God... Was the author of my uh, is the author of suffering in my life, not the devil. You know, in John chapter nine, there was a blind man, and I don't know if you remember the story or not, but they came to Jesus and they said, "Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Adversity. Jesus said, "Nobody sinned. He's blind that the glory of God could be manifest." I had a friend of mine call me a couple of weeks ago. Been a friend of mine in the ministry for a number of years. Young man. Compared to today. He told me he had cancer. Had just been diagnosed with cancer. And he said, you know what? He said, they think they'd spread a lot farther than it probably should have. He said, I just want to let you know. He said, I love you. And I wanted you to know that... Uh, I got to go in for some tests, and you just pray God would have his own way. And you know, when you hear something like that, my first response is get on a plane and go down there. My first response is do something, because I'm a fix-it guy. Do something to fix it. You know what he said to me? I'm asking him a bunch of questions about 
what do they see? Because once he said it's further advanced than what it is, that's not good. Maybe in the bone, da 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 I started asking him all these questions. He says, you know what, Bob? He said, I only know one thing for sure. And I says, what's that? That God gave me this cancer. So we'll just see where he goes with it from here. Now, how do you deal with that? There's a man who understood that adversity comes from God. And in the book of Job, you know what you find? God had something that he wanted Job to learn. He had a message for Job. But God used the delivery boy, the devil, as a delivery boy to bring that message. And sometimes in our lives, through adversity, I don't understand it. Sometimes through our lives, through adversity, God has something He wants us to learn, or maybe somebody around us that He wants to learn, or God is going to do something through us that He couldn't do any other way. And He wants us to be part of it, and He wants us to see it, and the bottom line is we get so hung up on the delivery boy, we never get the message. God had a message for Job. And growing through adversity. And this great book shows me that, that adversity comes from God. God is the author of suffering. Nobody snuck into your life. I don't know if you know it or not, but chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 2 verse 3, when the devil came in that day before the throne room, God brought Job's name up. The devil never did. God said, have you considered my servant Job? Why? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I already know the end of the book, and Job's life was a lot better with God after what he went through than it was before, even though it seemed like he had everything. And you know what? I can't promise you, I can't promise anybody that you're getting better of your suffering will be in this life. But bless God, we know it'll be on the other side in life. God does things, puts things, suffering, adversity in our lives that maybe right now, my friend, you don't see and you don't understand. And I know it hurts. And I know you have pain. I know across this city and across this country, there's thousands of God's people who are suffering with real problems. Not the self-fabricated kind that we have. Real problems. And they don't understand the answer. And they don't understand the whys. But I'm telling you, my Bible says in Romans chapter 14, verse 7, 8, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life and how you react to the adversity of life. You say you're a child of God. You say you're a Christian. And they watch you. And they watch the adversity. And they watch you turn from God. They watch you get your nose bit at a joint. They watch you walk away from God. Adversity, you'll either turn to or you'll turn Learn from God. But you'll go one way or the other. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, we die. We are the Lord's, the Bible says. Oh, not only is that book of Job a great book doctrinally, I'm telling you what, it'll answer the questions of life of why we have to go through in this life. And we haven't got to the answer yet, by the way. I'm just showing you the things. Wait till the answer pops in here in a minute. I'm just showing you things that God has showed me. 
I'm preaching this message to you today from my own heart of where I've been and what I've struggled with. And there's the fourth thing. And to me, this is the greatest truth. The greatest truth of all. Job lost in seven days all the fabric of what we call society. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost his economics. All the things that we look at society and weaving society together to make us happy and complete, he loses. In seven days, what you and I will never lose in a lifetime, and yet, my friend, oh, you've got to see this. Job has no Bible. He wasn't able to run to John 3.16 and 1 John 5, 1 Peter 5.8. He didn't have a Bible. There's no copies of the Scripture. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a place where he could run where people would pray for him. His family got killed all to his wife, and she should have died. The only help she offered is, curse God and die. And you know, I often wonder where she got that from, because that's the same thing the devil said he'd do when he stood before God. Hmm, wonder where she got that idea. He has no Bible. He has no church. He has no preacher. He has no CDs to listen to. He has no Christian counselors that are any good. He has no therapist. He has no meds he can take. He has no 700 club he can tune into. He has no Christian radio. He has no Christian books. All he has is three miserable friends who want to self-persecute him unrighteously and make fun of him and, and, and tell him that he's the problem. Hey, you know what? He has no Bible. He has no church. He has no preacher. He has no Bible study. He has no nothing except, except, except God. And the greatest thing I want you to see from this is that God is enough. All the other stuff is great. I'm glad I got a Bible. I'm glad I got a church. I'm glad I got friends that love me and pray for me. I'm glad I got things I can study. And I'm glad I got things I can read and listen to. But the bottom line is this. You better begin to live your life just like it is only you and Him. Because in Job's day, it came down to just Him and God. How you deal with adversity shows me exactly what my own personal relationship with God really is. Oh, don't give me this stuff about your King James Bible. You can have that King James Bible. You can read that King James Bible. You can study that King James Bible. You can know that King James Bible frontwards and backwards and lay out the ten warts on the Antichrist nose. And you know what? It doesn't mean you know the author of the King James Bible. It doesn't mean it's your own personal relationship. I'm telling you, God put that in there to tell you that when you don't have anything, you better have God because God in your relationship with Him is enough. God's enough. You better live your life like it's just you and Him. Oh, it's great to have Christian friends. It's great to have all the things that we have. But I'm telling you, so many times we put the emphasis on those things instead of the emphasis on just building the relationship with God one-on-one that pleases Him. And then when the adversity comes, that's why we fold up. Then the last thing, or almost the last thing, the fifth thing God taught me. The devil will always find our weak spot. Job is a picture of a great Christian. 
Chapter 1, verse 1 says he was perfect. He was upright. He hated evil. Chapter 1, verse 5 says he's offering sacrifices for his sons when there's not even a law that says you have to. He's doing that based on what he saw in the stories of Cain and Abel and what he's learned with Noah. I mean, what an incredible guy he is. In fact, he's so incredible that in Ezekiel chapter 14, 14, the Bible says that during the period of time when the captivity, when Israel's in total, complete disarray and they hate God and are far away from God, God himself says, you know what? If, if three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, lived during this time, they're the only ones that could get any kind of righteousness because of the fact in this whole world, nobody's righteous except those three. In fact, there's seven men in that Bible that God gives special mention to that'll teach you every aspect of your Christian life. Job's just one of them. Well, God himself said in, in chapter 1, verse 8, to the devil, there was none like him on earth, a man that feared God and was a servant. And now the devil in chapter 1, verse 9, he challenges that. And he says, why not? Why, you've given him everything he's got. Hey, you know what? You take what he's got and he'll curse you to his face. God said, no, he won't. Yes, he will. 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 Go ahead and see. Now you know what happens. He comes down there and he loses everything financially. He loses his family. He loses his own health. He's sitting on an ash heap. His wife comes over and says, Curse God and die! And he's in terrible agony, suffering with the loss of his health, his family, in grief, in mourning, with no money! And three friends, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, show up and begin to falsely accuse him. And yet the Bible says, chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, verse 10, Yet all this, Job sinned not. He's a pretty good guy. He's better than me. That's incredible. But in that, there's a great lesson. And the lesson is something I've talked to you about from day one. Went into detail on it many times. And it's the word balance. Because when the devil couldn't get him to sin by what he was doing with him, he got him to sin another way. And the great lesson is this. Balance in our lives. Balance in our lives. You see, we think because we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, you know, then we ain't like the rest of the world, that, that, we, that we're okay. Now, we think because there's people out there that are, we're not like. There's people out there in the world, Christian people, we're not like them. We don't do those things. I'm not involved in that. We begin to, we begin to think that, or we begin to fall into that trap that Job fell in, and the devil, with all that he did, could not get Job to curse God, but he got him. And there lies the danger for us who try to live right. Because when Job was defending himself so much against everybody that was attacking him, he swung the other way and he fell into self-righteousness. He fell into the piety of being self-righteous. The only thing that upsets Elihu, type of the Holy Spirit of God, found in chapter 32, verse 1, is the fact that Job was righteous in his own eyes and justified himself rather than God. And as far as I'm concerned from a practical application, Job chapter 27, verse 6, is the key verse in all the Bible. Job says, my righteousness, I hold fast 
and will not let go. My heart shall not reproach me so as long as I live. And in that he got self-righteous. And I'm telling you, there's a real danger in defending yourself. There's a real danger in being right, so right, that you start pointing out everybody else's problems that you fall into self-righteousness. I was meeting Martin Luther one time. <laughs> Martin Luther, without a doubt, is the most hated, persecuted man in all of Christian history. I don't agree with everything him doctrinally. But he took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation by nailing those 99 theses to the door at Wittenberg in Germany. And he was the most hated, written about, hate literature man that you have ever met in the history of the Christian world. I mean there's more written on Martin Luther than any other man <coughs> for and against. Half the world hates him. The other one time a guy went in and says, Martin, don't you know the whole, because what he was doing back then was not popular. And, and, and somebody went in one time and he said, Martin, don't you know the whole world's against you? And he says, well, I'm against the whole world then. I was reading one of his books one time. You know what he said? <laughs> he says, this was in a book on a commentary in one of the books of the Bible. He says, every Christian ought to get drunk every six months so the devil doesn't take advantage of him. I looked at that and I thought to myself, well, I can know a lot of God's people like that advice. <laughs> and when I studied his life, I found out what he was saying. What he was saying, he was defending himself and what he believed. That he was so fed up with the balance that he would defend himself and then he'd fall into self right. Hey, it's a lot easier <clears throat> to deal with your drunken stupidity sin than it is your self-righteous sins. You see, everybody sees when you get drunk. Nobody sees when you get self-righteous for a while. You can hide it for a while, but it comes out. And I'm telling you, you get so busy, we get so busy defending ourselves when we're attacked, when the adversity comes, and I know adversity comes, and I'm trying to cover all the expanse of adversity, not just physical suffering, but I'm talking about when you're attacked, when something doesn't go right, when somebody talks about you, when somebody says, I mean, I'm telling you, you get so caught up in all of that that you run to the other side, and you're so busy defending yourself, you fall into self-righteousness. Only thing that upset the type of the Holy Spirit of God in Job in that whole book was Job justifying himself. Why do the righteous suffer? Here comes the answer, and I'm done. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do good things, bad things happen to good people? Why do some of us have to bear the load. Why do we go through the things that we have to go through? Well, let me just tell you this. Within the book of Job, there are several great chapters that go along with Psalms chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 50. 
and so many other places in the Bible. But in Job chapter 30, in Job chapter 16, verse 10, you'll find that the sufferings of Christ at its worst time, there's a period of picture of Christ suffering on the cross for you and for me. Job is one of those great books that goes behind the scenes and shows you in a way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could never show you what the agony and the suffering that Christ paid on the cross. Oh, my friend, why do the righteous suffer? One of the most unique experiences I ever had a number of years ago, I got to go to chief's training camp. My wife had went several times. There were some people that took food up there and they had a business and they would get recognition from it and Barb would always go and, and I never went, but the, the last year we went, I went. <clears throat> it was one of the most interesting times and I don't care that much for football. <clears throat> but I found a guy that I just sat down in the grass and watched all afternoon. Barb was over hitting on Marcus Allen. You laugh, her and him got to be good buddies. I, I was a little worried about it there for a while, you know. Only when Marcus Allen starts calling my house to talk to my wife, he better have some bucks in his back pocket. I ain't kidding you. I got the phone call one night, and I answered the phone. I said, hello. He says, is, is, um, boy said, is Barb there? And I said, my ass, who's calling? And he kind of laughed, and he said, no. <laughs> well, I could tell by his voice who it was. I said, Barb, this is Marcus Allen on the phone. <laughs> well, she had been talking to him, and, and her football dad go back football. You know, she knows more about football than anybody I ever met in my life. And they were, and she knew Paul Brown, who knew shot an armor and they were sitting in the grass talking and she got talking to Marcus and you know Marcus was going to bring all the backs back over for dinner you know because you know, it never worked out but but he's starting that television program and we had that television program you know he was telling her about she said oh I'd like to come that'd be great and he said well he says how many tickets you want and she said well she says my daughter and my husband will probably go and everything and he says okay he says well he says uh, when it all gets set up he says uh, i'll get you some tickets well you know how that is thank you he'll get what's your name i forget who they were you know and on she go well the phone rang and he says oh by the way he says how many tickets you want and then he said to my wife well you can come anytime you want just tell me how many tickets and my wife says well how do i get a hold of you hey, let me give you my home number <laughs> for five bucks you can have marcus alice's home number today <laughs> She was over there kibitzing with those guys. I'm sitting down in the grass and I'm fascinated by one guy. One guy. Gunther Cunningham. I'll tell you what. I walked away from there and I told my wife, I said, you know what? If that guy ever, I don't know if he's saved or not, but I said, if he ever got saved, he would be a great preacher. He understands the fundamental of getting people to do what football says you're supposed to do, just like a preacher understands the fundamentals of getting somebody to do what's new with the Bible. And I was sitting down there. I never forget this as long as I live. He knows how to motivate people. I can't use all the language he used today, but boy, he knows how to motivate people. I'm sitting down there, in this, and I just had to sit down in the grass, and he's running the drills, and it's hot. And he's out there, you know, and he's telling them what to do and over that thing, and they play the play. And I mean, everybody got smacked up in the middle, and evidently the guys that he was coaching didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now, these are guys that make $20 million a year. 
I mean, he's a guy. We were there one night, and that Jerome Wood guy, that was his rookie year. And he, they, he, he was at the, we ate with him, you know, in the thing there. And they, he, he, he just had a signing, a signing, oh, pocket change, signing bonus, $3 million. Sign your name down here. Here, here's $3 million. And we're going to give you another $25 million for the next two years. But here, hey, you want to get a burger on the way home? Here's $3 million bucks. <laughs> Big burger for me, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> and, I, and, I was, and, and they're out there, you know, and these guys, hut, 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 hey, crack, crack. I love that sound, too. Cracking, helmets hitting, pads hitting, man, guys, ooh, ooh, and everybody's proud in the middle. And, this guy, and the guy, did, two or three guys didn't do their play. Then he's responsible for, I guess, you know, and he didn't do what was right. And they come trotting off the field like, show me some sympathy. <laughs> he, he went out and he said, hey, what are you looking like that for? That's your blankety blank job. When I heard that, I never forgot that. He motivated them. They may not have been great football players, but he had a way of describing job descriptions that was unlike anything I ever heard in my life. <laughs> Why do you suffer? Hey. Because it's our job. It's our job. Football player gets $20 million to go out and crack his bones, break his neck, break his legs, and suffer so we can win a Super Bowl ring. The King of Glory died on the Calvary's cross, and he bought your salvation and my salvation with all the blood and all the aristocracy and all the gold in heaven. And the Bible says that God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. I don't know if this will help, but all I can tell you is this. If you really suffer, and you truly suffer, all I can say is you've got something that the rest of us don't have that God sees in you, a chosen vessel, that through that suffering, God can do in your life or somebody else's life or maybe in all of our lives what God does so well. But you've got to get the perspective. You've got to use the yardstick. You've got to understand that God has a message for us. You've got to understand that God is the author, not the devil. And you've got to understand that suffering, that's our job. That's our job. That's our job. Gunther Cunningham was saying, hey, we're paying you big bucks. That's your job. I'm telling you, God died on a cross of glory. And you know what? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. It's our job. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, listen to me, suffered without the gate let us go therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach suffering adversity it's our job it's just one more tool in the Christian toolbox one that we get so caught up on the devil and all the perspective and all the things that the delivery boy does that we miss sometimes we miss sometimes what God is doing oh I'm telling you we don't see it all now. I don't understand it all now. I couldn't even begin to give an explanation other than the fact that it's your job. But on the other side, we'll understand it and you'll see and understand greater than we do now that God saw something in you that he didn't see in the rest of us. And maybe our time's coming. I don't know. Maybe we're not to the place where you are. But I know this. 
I know the book of Job for me puts suffering in perspective. There's a day I don't talk to somebody on the phone or know what you've been through. That it doesn't give me more of respect for you and respect for what God has done in your life. It's been an encouragement to me to see you go on when other people would have quit. I, I don't know what to tell you. I told you it was going to be hard. I told you I felt so inadequate. But I know this, God gives us the right perspective. He gives us the right yardstick. He gives us everything that we need to see and understand. He shows us that God is the author of suffering. He shows you that God is enough. And He shows us that our job is suffering. And all I can tell you, and all I can leave you with is this. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. It's our job. After what He did on the cross, what can I say? What can I say? It's the difference between a real man of God and a superficial man of God. Is the difference between a real woman that stands for God than a superficial? Is the difference between someone who takes the adversity and all of the pain and does with it what God wants them to do versus the rest of us who complain about every little diddly thing in life that means absolutely nothing? Is the difference between maturity and immaturity? Is the difference between being strong and being weak? It is the difference of getting the blessings of suffering or losing the blessings of suffering. But in that day, it will be worth it all. Every head bowed and every eye closed.